session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. So I'll be doing the books today because on Monday's show, I was very lucky to be joined by Jerome Dixon. I hope you tuned in uh, very briefly. Um, Jerome, at the age of 17, was falsely accused of committing a crime and he was forced into 25 hours of interrogation which led eventually to a false confession for a murder he did not commit. He went on to serve 21 and a half years in prison for a crime he did not commit and finally was released uh, about nine years ago. And so he shared his story Mondays uh, on Monday show. If you have not heard it or were not tuning in then I'll upload that uh, later today and hope you'll check that out. So a big thank you to Jerome Dixon um, for coming on and sharing his heartbreaking and inspiring story for what he's done since what he went through and look forward to actually having him back on sometime soon to share more about his story and what he's done since his release uh, from being falsely accused and giving a false confession. And, and I might actually talk about that later today, depending on how, how the show goes. So that being said, I'll talk about last week's book today. Uh, the book of the week for this week is Ruby Bridges, This Is Your Time. The title of the book is This Is Your Time by Ruby Bridges. Now, Ruby Bridges is, uh, was one of the first children, to African-American children, to go to an all-white school, so essentially to desegregate or integrate the schools and you've maybe seen pictures and videos of this historic moment and, and heartbreaking in the sense that so many people were against it just 60 years ago and actually the anniversary of it was, was a few days ago and so she just wrote this book recently it's in a sense from what I've um, heard her talk about it and read a little bit about a letter or not a letter but a book to younger individuals this is your time about what they can do but shares her story and uh, looking forward to reading that and, and sharing it with you on monday's show so that is this is your time by ruby bridges all right let's get to the book of the week from last week that i'll talk about today it is the varieties of scientific experience by carl sagan the varieties of scientific experience a personal view of the Search for God by Carl Sagan, edited by Anna Druyan. And Anna, or Anne, excuse me, Anne Druyan, uh, was Carl Sagan's wife. He passed, I believe, in 1995. 
1996, actually. Um, and he gave these lectures in 1985, um, the Gifford Lectures. And so there's been many notable individuals who have given these talks, which he mentions, uh, individuals such as William James, um, Niels Bohr, Albert Schweitzer. And so uh, these Gifford Lectures, which are called the Gifford Lectures on Natural Theology, uh, given at the University of Glasgow, uh, what Anna and his, her wife did, uh, his wife did, was to edit these. He, she found them years later in drawers. Apparently he had lots of manuscripts and transcripts and different things, and he wanted to turn this into a book but never did before he passed. And so she came up with a title based on William James's lectures, which he turned into a book he titled The Varieties of Religious Experience. So this is called The Varieties of Scientific Experience. And essentially they are the lectures that she edited. She said she didn't change much, um, but to make them into kind of a book format rather than how they would come off in a lecture. And it included some questions and answers at the end of the book as well. And it, it was remarkable. And a big thank you to my friend Alex. He recommended this book and I instantly got it and, and read it. and. I'm so happy that I did. In, in reading the books of the week that I've done, one of the things I really enjoy is to, in some ways, feel like I'm getting a, a conversation or delving into the mind of a great mind, a great thinker who is either alive or dead, and to learn from them. And uh, this was definitely the case uh, with Carl Sagan, where I felt like I was having a conversation with him, so to speak, um, learning from him. Uh, and just seeing the way that he approached these important questions, looking at science and the study of the world and the universe, and then also how that can relate to things like religion and the belief in God. Um, and it, it was quite fascinating. And he's so brilliant, yet you feel a kindness in his way of speaking and the way he puts things. And although he is brilliant, he still is very careful, in my opinion, not to overstate what he can say he knows. And so he very often will say, we don't know this, or we have to suspend judgment um, on this, which I think is really good advice for all of us to keep in mind. I actually thought about it, especially in this political climate, climate where people are so convinced they know the truth, something I've talked about a few times on recent episodes, but so convinced they know this is the right way. My candidate or my, this person is good, yours is bad. And we claim to know things that we just can't know. You know, we talk about economic issues that expert economists will disagree on or public health issues that there's disagreement or maybe people don't know. But yet, as a layperson, we somehow claim to know because it fits into some narrative or some perspective or, you know, it becomes a team type of a thing. So reading Carl Sagan's thoughts on these issues, he does at times say we, ha we don't know and we have to except that we don't know some of these things. And, and that is true when it comes to the issue of God, to claim you know there is a God or to claim you know there isn't. You can't say, and there isn't evidence. And at times he brings up different theories or ideas that people have to prove one way or the other, but really none of them are proofs. People, I've seen articles, people say scientists 
found something that proves the existence of God, but usually we'll see that it's not really a proof. If you want it to prove, because you already want to believe it, it can fit your narrative very well, but if you don't, uh, or if you really are looking at it more objectively, you'll see that there's no way to actually say this is proof of God. Um, but one of the things he did, which to me was quite interesting in a few of the lectures, was looking at the way what we know about the universe affects how we think of God or gods and what that means. And so we can't say there is a God or there isn't, but one thing we can see throughout human history is that there is this sense that uh, God helps to explain the unexplainable. And when science advances and when civilization advances, what's unknowable changes and what we know changes and that can have impacts on how we view God. So sometimes we think of primitive people in our minds many millennia ago and the way they think about the stars or certain things we think oh they were so uh, you know primitive they didn't understand so they thought the gods moved these lights or that you know that these um, the planets were in these celestial glassed kind of cases or something like that. But throughout history, we see different explanations for what the gods were doing or what was going on based on what they knew. And we might laugh at them, but if we look at our own understanding, we're, we can be certain that uh, someday soon people will laugh at what we know. And then so what we try to attribute to God because we can't explain it might become more knowable. And again, this doesn't mean God can't exist, but that we have to be aware of the ways that what we know and don't know can affect how we view God or understand uh, this, what we consider supernatural. Often what is supernatural or considered supernatural, it's because we don't understand it yet. It doesn't mean it's supernatural. Uh, there can be an explanation, but we might not understand it yet. Just like if there was an eclipse thousands of years ago, they might think God was mad at them. There's a solar eclipse and the, the sky goes black when it's supposed to be daytime. And so they might think God or gods or some deity is mad and punishing the people or it has some great significance. But now we know that it's when the moon passes in front of the sun, we have this um, experience or this phenomenon on, on Earth. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to think of, well, what do we now think? And even if we look at some of the traditional religions, and he does talk about Copernicus and how things changed, we used to think, well, the earth is the center of the universe. And so that's, that's it. So God, of course, where the most important thing to God or gods is this center of the universe. And then, of course, Copernicus and others saying that, no, we're actually not the center. Uh, it seems like we go around the sun, uh, and now it became a heliocentric kind of view of, of our system. And so that was a challenge to a lot of people. How could we not be the center of everything, of the universe? And so that's why people who said these things were... Uh, at times considered heretics and, and you know they had to be punished in different ways Galileo as well so people were afraid of expressing these views because they went against the church and what people believed which was that we had to be the center of everything and the same things of course happened with things like evolution that if God created us no we can't say we came from apes or other animals we are special in some way and so we see that theme of us being special um, holding a big place in religion. And so what we find is not only we're not the center of the universe, uh, we're not the center of our solar system. 
And then when we think about it even further and we understand more, which has happened over time, we see that even when our the sun isn't the center of the universe, it's the center of our solar system, which is part of a galaxy. And we aren't even the center of that galaxy. Uh, we are somewhere in that galaxy or somewhere on the outskirts, I believe. And then if we think that we're the only galaxy, we're not. There's so many other galaxies as well. And so we see that, you know, when I was reading it, it's interesting the way that we think of God being so focused on this earth. That's the only thing that really matters. Well, I think that was because when people, the primary religions that tend to be followed by the most people, it makes sense that that was the understanding of the universe, that there was no other really galaxies or places. This was it. And so we thought of God in this way. And also the way we see God for a lot of people, um, it has been this image of a, a man with, um, you know, a beard and, you know, sometimes wearing sandals or wearing like a white robe. And that's our image of God, which again is limited in projecting. He talked about this projecting our own understanding of life or the world or the way we see things, that we saw God as a man. And even as a man, if we look at different religious texts that has feelings and emotions and so we made him very human-like and you know again is that possible maybe but even the way we thought of God in our sky which is a lot of what people thought we then consider that the world has or the universe has all these stars and galaxies that go beyond but it makes sense if it's one God because that's a very big thing for many people monotheism one God that he would be just above our sky looking at us. And, and this also brings uh, the thoughts or the um, exploration for life on other planets. Uh, do we have proof of beings like us on other planets? No, of what we consider an intelligent life, whatever that means. And that's, of course, going to be subjective based on what we consider to be intelligence. Uh, but we haven't seen or experienced that yet in ways that we can understand. But we've seen life or signs of life on other planets, even I think on some of the, was it the stars of, uh, sorry, the moon of, I think it was either Jupiter or Saturn, one of the bigger ones has some signs of life. And again, life doesn't necessarily mean people, it can be just bacterium or water or things that might be able to contribute to life. But nonetheless, the uh, thought that there surely is life out there on other planets when we consider how vast the universe there is, how many stars there are that would then have planets that would have conditions similar to ours or suitable to life, it seems to me improbable that life isn't out there. And it's really, you know, when I was reading this book, it's, when you think of these things, you do have these existential type of crises where you just, you know, it's hard to fathom or comprehend. And this is, I think, where we see the limits of what we can actually understand come into play of, of what it means to be a part of this universe when it's it's so vast, so vast that we can't even imagine it. So I wanted to share some more thoughts about this book uh, after uh, this first commercial break. Again, it's The Varieties of Scientific Experience, A Personal View of the Search for God by Carl Sagan, edited by Anne Druyan. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm going to continue discussing the book, The Varieties of Scientific Experience by Carl Sagan, edited by Anne Druyan. Uh, highly, highly recommend this book. It was really a fascinating read. And um, as I mentioned in the first segment, getting to have a glimpse into a great mind and hearing some of his thoughts 
about some essentially unanswerable questions, but maybe a way of thinking about some of these things. And, and so as I mentioned to end the last segment, uh, it is interesting when you think about God and religion and the ways we view things that we assume, um, you know, our place in the universe to have certain significance that affects the ways that we look at God or view what God is or what that even means. Um, and so when we take a bigger picture look and understand what we do know about the world or the universe now, even that's interesting. He said, you know, we say the world. If I say that, usually the world means earth, right? If I say uh, he's the greatest something in the world or she's the most something in the world, we mean earth, but it shows our perspective and our bias to think of this being the whole world, this planet. But now we know that's not the case, but still we do talk in those ways. Uh, so we think of the, the world being planet earth when it's really, of course, one, one speck, not even like a grain of sand on one of our own oceans, really, when we think about the universe. So that's interesting to see that type of um, perspective of things and uh, hearing him share his understandings of things like UFOs. And he does not think what people have described as seeing UFOs, on a, you know, unidentified flying objects, really uh, any of the evidence is fair to say convincing, but he doesn't think it's impossible that we would encounter extraterrestrials, and it's quite possible that we will, and even he's in favor of sending out messages through things like radio waves to try to make contact. Actually, something I learned in reading the about him in, in the book was that Carl Sagan wrote the novel that turned into the movie Contact, which I think came out in the 90s, and I remember I was very young when I saw it and didn't remember or maybe understand it too much. I remember it was really uh, interesting with Jodie Foster. Wouldn't mind seeing it again uh, now after reading this book. But anyway, so he's in favor of trying to get in contact, and he believes that's possible, but he does share that he doesn't think what we've seen or people have shared as experiences of encountering UFOs is likely that. And uh, there are other people who've shared things like what people might be experiencing or uh, things like sleep paralysis can explain some of these encounters with UFOs and when people say they were probed by the probes, uh, by the um, UFOs and, and the extraterrestrials, things like that. And what we also see is culture plays a big part of what people see or experience. And so in certain cultures, there's, for example, this myth of this witch lady who comes sits on your chest and people in that region, a lot of them will have that experience when they experience things like sleep paralysis. But we can see that it's projecting our culture or understanding of things onto those experiences. People in other areas, if they don't know about this myth, don't see this witch woman. But people in that region do, clearly showing that it's not really about the witch or something real, but that when we have certain experiences and we try to make sense of them, culture and our understanding of things is inevitably going to be projected onto those experiences. So he didn't talk about sleep paralysis, but I've read by other authors some understanding that some of the experiences people have had uh, with aliens, um, extraterrestrials, tends to be about that. But he shares some of the things that people have also experienced as far as thinking they've seen something that later turned out to be things like weather balloons or other um, stories or that could be explained and that he at this that time of his giving these lectures back in 1985 didn't see any proof that we've encountered uh, extra, extraterrestrials the way that people have said now um, 
he mentions a lots of different things about God and life and how people talk about it. Again, not giving any conclusion that there is a God or is not a God, essentially saying that we don't have evidence of either. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and there is no actual proof for God that he felt is convincing to say there definitely is one. Uh, near the end of the book, he did also have some uh, pretty strong comments, and actually it came up earlier too. Uh, you have to keep in mind this is 1985, not that everything has changed, but that's more in the heart of the Cold War. And so people um, did have an anxiety about the destruction of the world through the nuclear weapons that were developed. And so he does talk about that and how religion actually can even affect that, first of all, that he thought people who were religious or religious organizations should be more involved in trying to prevent nuclear war and be promoting disarmament uh, to not allow for us to be able to hurt or, or to really destroy our, our universe, but that this also can be affected by the ways we view God and religion. Some people, because of their belief that humans are so important or special or unique and God's creatures that uh, are different from every other creature in some way, believe that we will never disappear. So they almost think it's not possible that we could destroy ourselves. Um, and this belief could be very dangerous. Or others might believe it's good if we destroy ourselves because then there's the rapture or some other uh, religious experience or event will take place, and this is a good thing. So they might even think we shouldn't interfere with uh, the world ending because that's actually a good thing that's been prophesized. So uh, quite scary actually to think of some of those things, but um, it, it was interesting to hear his thoughts and his fears about people not uh, taking this issue seriously enough for some of their own beliefs or reasons that might be calming in the sense that they'll make you feel better to have this sense that we are protected, but might not based on any reality. We don't have any evidence to suggest that we can't destroy this planet, that we wouldn't do it and that something would happen or somehow we'd be saved from it. Um, and I think that's very important to keep in mind and something that he discussed in one of the later lectures in the book. And I thought that was quite fascinating. And I know people have uh, made efforts to reduce the number of nuclear weapons, but the technologies are always there. And uh, I think it's quite sad that we have this situation that we might not be taking seriously enough uh, to recognize that the way we are acting and the adversarial mindset that we still have amongst ourselves uh, is really one that um, could lead to the, the demise of the human population. And also, this is another area where when we look at the bigger picture, it can be helpful. You know, we can get so caught up in the battles we have between each other. And so even in the United States right now, the left and the right, it's such a strong battle that, you know, we, they're becoming enemies, hating each other, despising each other, can't like each other. People make jokes of civil war. There's threats of civil war. People make jokes of what if we just made separate states, um, which isn't the truth because we know that there is red and blue in every state in America, so you can't really do that. Or just because when you look at the electoral map, 
it uh, looks blue and red. That's not some reality. And actually, I saw someone uh, po put a post, I think it was Adam Grant, that really we shouldn't make the states look blue and red because it makes it look more divisive than the reality, which is that they're all maybe different shades of purple, uh, but it's not such a stark, this is blue, this is red. They're all purple to a degree, maybe a little bit more red or blue um, in the, the tint or the hue, but not that they're actually exactly just different colors the way it appears, which then promotes these ideas of, well, let's just separate the states. But in many of those states, millions of people would be on the other side of whatever you think it is, blue or red. Um, and But when we look at how divided we can feel, and then if something were to happen, we might say, oh, well, the United States has to band together against other countries uh, because now we have those enemies and now we have to be together. But if we also look at the, the world and we realize we are just one planet in this universe, I think that can have an effect of seeing that what we consider to be so important in these differences really are not. And I hope it doesn't have to come to some war with a neighboring galaxy and, and members of that galaxy. It reminds you of the movie Independence Day, where everyone came together to then fight against the, the aliens that were attacking, I think, the whole world. Uh, but it, hopefully it wouldn't have to come to that, that we need to have a common enemy to band together to come together because then you know again when we let's say there's a neighboring galaxy i'm sure then there will be of you know even further galaxies that then they'll come attack us and maybe we band with that uh planet that we were attacking earlier having a war with so we can see that this mindset of being against or adversarial in a way it can never end there will always be enemies that we think we have to defeat and maybe we don't need to do that and in the question and answers he talked about how uh, he responded to a question saying that he thinks we have an aggressive side, but we also have a compassionate side as human beings, which I think is very true. We all have the, the capacity for things like kindness, but also violence. It's within each of us. And also as societies and countries and uh, in a global sense, we can feed either side of that part of who we are. We can become a more compassionate world and i just caught myself there saying world when i mean the earth but we can become more compassionate as members of this citizens of this earth and come together rather than think of it as an aggressive type of thing that we have to be against each other and we still see that mindset that we think we have to fight our way to peace something that i think does not make sense to me this idea that if i'm more powerful than everyone else i will have peace or if i kill all of my enemies then I will have peace. We see that these strategies don't work and lead to more destruction. And when you are killing others, you then just breed more enemies because people won't like you, which makes sense for them not to like you. And so you don't achieve peace by killing everyone that you don't like or disagrees with you. And the only way towards peace is to actually create strong relationships with each other, to actually feed the compassionate side of who we are as individuals and as societies and to recognize that and so when he wrote gave these lectures in 1985 it might have felt even stronger the cold war and what was going on but it by no means means we are uh clear and out of the woods in the sense that we couldn't do those same things nuclear weapons and the technologies just get stronger and he talked about that how people just think well it will get safer if we just do this next thing if we make ourselves a little bit stronger than the others somehow that will make us feel safe and really that's not the case we're not ever going to get there by becoming more 
powerful and putting others down. When you create these power struggles and dynamics, it doesn't work. It just ends up creating a situation where you are constantly in a state of war and vigilance. And so that was for me very interesting, hearing some of his thoughts and ideas on that and his hope that we would come together. But he was realistic that it might not happen. And I think it's important for us to be realistic. Um, and just to give you what he talked about, the fallacy of the last move is this idea that just one more ratchet up the arms race and then everything will be fine forever. So if we think we kind of get the upper hand, but once we get the upper hand, then they're just going to challenge us again in another way, whoever that us and them is. Um, and so I thought that was very interesting that we have to take that seriously and not think that we will always just survive because we're humans and we're special in some way. Um, what can make us special is how we act and who we become, not just by, I think, some feeling that we are special and that God will always protect us, whether you believe in God or not, but that somehow you will always be protected. I don't think that's that's a safe uh, bet for us to make in a, in a way that we just assume we're going to be okay. So I thought that was really interesting to hear Carl Sagan's thoughts on that. And just uh, the whole book was really fascinating. You know, I think a lot of times we're looking for answers to these unanswerable questions, and he didn't give an answer on is there a God or is there not a God, but he shared some very interesting perspectives and thoughts that I thought were quite fascinating and really uh, I, I definitely enjoyed hearing those thoughts and thinking about them was definitely one of those books that made me think a lot throughout the week and i watched some of his lectures or little videos of him talking to hear other ideas from him and i was really fascinated by it so i hope you will check this book out uh, and also just hear more from him and especially that mindset that we at times have to suspend judgment I think that's always valuable to recognize what we can and cannot know. And most of the time, what we can say we certainly know is very small. Doesn't mean we don't know anything, but it is a lot smaller than we think at times. And that it's okay. And we all can acknowledge that we don't know. And oftentimes, suspending judgment is the most wise or intelligent place to be. Of course, having opinions on things that matter that we can have opinions on also is important. But on some of these bigger questions, recognizing we don't know. And so for me, that was quite fascinating to hear Carl Sagan's thoughts on that. So again, that was the book, The Varieties of Scientific Experience, A Personal View of the Search for God by Carl Sagan, edited by his wife, Anne Druyan. Let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. As I mentioned at the top of the show Monday, I was very happy to have Jerome Dixon on the show to share his story about what he went through um, at the age of 17 being interrogated for 25 hours for a crime, a murder he did not commit without having access to a lawyer or his parents. And eventually, at the end of the, those 25 hours, he gave a false confession saying that he had committed the murder. And what happened next uh, was he spent 21 and a half years behind bars for a crime he did not commit and finally was released in 2011. And uh, as I said every time I mention it, to me it's a heartbreaking yet inspiring story. Um, heartbreaking what he went through so unfairly. The injustice is just incredible. 
I, I can't even imagine. You know, we think of things that we get upset about and we're hurt about, and someone does something to us. Imagine being behind bars for over two decades of your life for something you did not do, and and how much pain, how much you missed. And he talked about some of that, but he did also share how he has tried to overcome that and reminded me of Nelson Mandela saying that he had to leave the anger behind when he was finally released from prison because if he did not, he would still be locked up. He would still be essentially in prison if he did not let go of that anger and resentment. And we saw that because he was able to let go of that anger and resentment, he didn't come out saying, I'm against the people who did this to me and I will fight for revenge. Because he was able to somehow put that aside, he was able to unify the country because of that and if he held on to the anger only or that was where he was coming from that likely would not have been possible but also in Jerome's story we see that he is he gives motivational talks and he helps so many people but he's also helped fight for legislation uh, to make it so that no one else goes through what he went through and oftentimes one of the ways to get some kind of healing from our pain is to get meaning from our pain and so to find some kind of purpose in that thinking of the words of uh, Viktor Frankl when it comes to this one. If we find some why in our pain, it can make it a lot easier to bear. Um, and so, or Nietzsche's words of, if you have a why, uh, you can bear any how, any circumstances. So um, he has helped bring about laws that people will no longer in the state of California under the age of 18, that they can have a parent present or they won't have to go through what he went through. Now, that was a bit about his story. I hope you'll listen to Monday's show if you did not already. I'll definitely have him back on uh, to share different aspects of his story and the work that he's doing, including helping to um, reduce people going back to prison after being released as part of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. Uh, also great work that he's doing there. I want to hear more about that. So I hope you'll listen to that show. But I also wanted to talk a bit about um, you know, the false confession that he gave, because that can be so hard for people to comprehend or to fathom that someone would do that. And so the way I wanted to talk about that is at times I've mentioned judging a book by its cover when I pick the books that I in some ways do judge them by their covers or their titles or the very little I know, I, doing a play on that common saying. But I also wanted to change that to now think of don't judge a story that you've never been a character in, or don't judge a story that you've never experienced yourself. Because we think we know what we would do or what we would never do in a certain situation, but we really don't know what it's like to be in that situation and what we would do. And so when we hear about false confessions, it could seem so strange to think, so you're telling me someone would confess to a murder they did not do? And the truth is, yes, it has happened countless times throughout history and even still happens. And it's a very real thing. And there's been research done in the lab, which of course can be looked at as different than real life, but showing how easy it is to get people to make false confessions or at least make people think they might have done something. Um, but you can imagine in the heightened sense of being in a police department and getting interrogated and the, the tactics they're using, including lying, saying we have evidence, people saw you, um, it's going to be worse if you don't tell us the truth, so just tell us the truth, or even what they told to Jerome after a while is if you tell us you did it, we'll let you go, which 
such a heartbreaking thing to for have that that lie actually be legal. It's legal for police officers uh, and investigators to lie when they're doing these types of interrogations. And so they can say they have evidence they don't have or tell them we're going to let you go. And so not only did they not let him go, he was not let go for over 21 years. But when you're pressured in this way and when they distort reality and when they tell you they know something, we start to doubt things or we doubt ourselves or we just want to say yes to get out of there. Oftentimes, people in false confessions, they said, well, I just wanted to get out of there, and I figured the evidence would prove that I was not guilty, and I would be okay. I would get exonerated. I thought there was no way. So people can have distorted reality where they start to question themselves. I read the story of a boy, I think he was 16 or 17, who was convinced by the police that he had killed or stabbed his mom and dad. The mom had died instantly. The father apparently survived, but was in a coma. And even they told him things like, we talked to your dad on the phone and he said, you did it. Even though the father had never regained consciousness and died, um, they told him, he spoke to us and gave us proof that you did it. And it's so heartbreaking. And then he eventually admitted to it. He didn't you know that the reality was distorted. He didn't know. Uh, so there's that. There's also the possibility that you might think, well, if I just at least get out of here, you've been stuck here, in Jerome's case, 25 hours, you can imagine, not sleeping, just sitting there, what that must be like at any age, but especially at 17 years of age. Um, you might just want to get out of there at whatever cost at that point. And so you might sign a confession and make a statement saying that you, in fact, were, were the person who did the murder or the crime, whatever it might be. So we want to take that step back and recognize that we don't know what it's like to be in someone else's position. And that's why, uh, related to what I was talking about with Carl Sagan's uh, wisdom in the book of suspending judgment, that oftentimes we don't know. I'm not saying you would say, I would for sure do X, Y, or Z, but definitely you can't say, I would never do that in that situation. And this also includes things like being in a relationship with an abusive partner. People say, oh, of course, he or she wants it if they're staying there or they like it or, you know, it's their fault. They're completely to blame for what they're going through. Um, but you don't know what it's like and how people get into those relationships. It doesn't start that way. It's a very complex phenomenon that happens where people will experience lots of things. They love the person. They get hurt. Maybe they did have abuse in their past. So something about this feels familiar or okay or that they should accept it or they have to overcome it. So many factors are at play where they fear for their life. Uh, and quite literally, they might have to because those types of threats are made and things do happen. So it's not such a simple thing. Even as a therapist, if you learn about domestic violence, um, you don't just tell the person to leave instantly because you know that you don't know what's the best thing. These things are very complicated. You're not sure if that's the safest thing to do. So when you hear about someone's story and it seems so remarkable, you have to keep in mind that you don't know what it's like to be in that situation. It's like if I say, if you were, uh, you know, uh, so thirsty you were about to die, would you take water from someone or do something? Well, when you're sitting in a state where you're not very thirsty and you know you have access to water and you feel comfortable, you can't imagine what it feels like to be in that situation where you feel like you're about to die from not having any water. You can't comprehend that or you can try to, but we know we're very bad at that. We try to be, uh, have empathy or sympathy and try to feel other people's pain, but we know we're not very good at that. So if you think you know what you would do, you want to be cautious 
about that. Be aware that I can't judge someone doing something that I don't know what I would do in that same situation. I have never been in that situation to know. So when you hear about a false confession, before you think that's impossible, think that it is impossible. It is possible. Then there's so much evidence supporting that and so many stories of that. And unfortunately, because people think false confessions uh, aren't true, that if someone confesses, it must be real. How would someone say, and sometimes they have audio, you hear the person saying, I killed so-and-so on this date, or a written statement, and the written statement is usually something that the they'll produce for them and then they'll just sign it but so that that should be itself a little bit weird i think in jerome's case you know the the statement was something that clearly no one including a 17 year old would ever come up with i was traveling southbound on this street and this happened and that happened and then i did this um but still people are very uh, strongly convinced that if they confess it must be true and so even when there's evidence to the contrary, people still take the confession to be true. Or people who were other witnesses, they might now be more convinced or it might even change their mind about what happened because they see that confession. So it's important for us to be aware of different factors that affect human behavior. And one of them is this, that false confessions can happen. Of course, it doesn't mean every confession is false, but to be aware that they can be false and especially they can be coerced, which is often the case. Now, what's sad is that we can try to understand from the police officer's perspective, not to say what they're doing is right at all, but I think there's some missing steps in the logic of what happens. So when a crime happens, the just feeling is that we find who committed that crime and they are punished in some way. If someone killed someone, we, we would all agree that it's not okay for that crime to go unpunished if we know that someone killed someone. They should be punished for that, removed from society, whatever it might be, but we don't think it's okay to just ignore that. So we want to convict the person that did the crime. And then so from a police perspective, it's we want to have essentially no crimes or very few crimes where we haven't convicted someone of doing that thing, finding the person that did it. But unfortunately, what then gets lost is that it just becomes about crime conviction. And that missing piece, which of course is so important, is that the person getting convicted should only be the person who committed the crime and we should never convict someone who didn't commit the crime. Now, the legal injustice system has things like beyond a reasonable doubt for this reason, because we think it's so wrong to ever punish someone for a crime they did not commit that we want to err on the other side. We'd almost rather let some people go that were guilty than to put people in prison for a crime they did not commit. We feel that that bias makes sense or to skew things in that direction. But when the police is gathering evidence and they are just looking at crime conviction and that connection is the only thing that matters is we get someone convicted. And you can see that. They just want to say, for every murder that was committed, 99% of them, we convicted someone. Not even being aware that we have to very uh, importantly look at how many of those people were actually the ones that killed the person. Because if they weren't, how horrible is it to put someone behind bars who didn't commit that crime? But we see that that gets lost. It just becomes about crime conviction. And what happens in between doesn't even matter. The ends justify the means in this sense, that we just have to get the conviction. So if we get this person to uh, confess, that's all that matters, whether or not they did it. And I truly don't think a lot of times they even think the person did it or they really know. 
but they just feel that this is going to get them a conviction. In some sense, it gives the feeling of justice when actually it's the biggest injustice to punish someone for a crime they did not commit. So, you know, we see that those things happen. But taking a step back and looking at this bigger principle of not judging a character in a story that you are not in, it's just very important to keep this in mind, that you don't really know what it's like to be in a situation you haven't been in. And we like to feel good and tell ourselves, I would never, or this is not me, or I'm not the kind of person that would do this thing. But we have to be aware that we're human beings and we're definitely more similar than we are alike. Uh, or I'll talk about studies in psychology and they'll say 70% of people did this or 80% of people did this and it's something that you might not think is good or you wouldn't want to do. And people think, well, I would definitely be part of that 20% that didn't or the 30% that didn't or whatever the percentage is. And it's possible. I mean, if we just look at the percentages not knowing anything else, there's a 20% chance or 30% chance. But if we actually thought of what's more likely, it's actually more likely you would do that thing or whatever it was. And having that awareness that when you look at studies or you hear things, yes, it's it's a nice feeling to think you are better than others or that you would never do X, Y, or Z. But we have to accept our humanity means that we are all humans that are fallible and that we don't know what it's like to be in a certain situation and what we would do if we were in someone else's shoes and to try our best to at least suspend judgment of thinking we know what we would do and that if that person did this thing we would never do they are a bad person usually that's not the case all right let's go to another commercial break studio number 3104410555 we'll be right back welcome back uh, let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hi, Dr. Fahid Holakoui. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call. I'm glad to sure. be speaking with you. Um, so I, I am calling because I have a bit of situation with my uh, marriage. Um, so I've been married for almost three years, um, and um, my husband is not Persian, so uh, he's Asian, actually. Um, if that helps. Um, but basically, the main questions I have for you is now I'm wondering whether his reaction to the things I do is quote-unquote normal. Because can I give you an example of what just happened recently so maybe you can sure. help me? Okay, mm -hmm. thank you. <clears throat> so, like, um, first of all, we don't have that much good um, intimate relationship, um, so physically or otherwise. But... Like, to, that's another story I don't want to take your time with. But specifically well, that might be part of the story. Now, if I can also yeah. say, if you don't mind speaking a little louder, I don't know if it's just from my headphones, oh, but sure. I'm not hearing you so clear. Yeah. Okay. Is it better now? A little bit better, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. I don't know what's happening. Maybe. Okay, hold on. Let me see what I can do. Uh, is it better now? Yes, that is better. Okay, great. Yeah, so... Um, so, like, let me just start with this last instance, and then <clears throat> maybe you get the idea. So, uh, for example, this morning, um, uh, you know, before I was waking up, he was just kind of, I guess, trying to be playful, just kind of kicking me in the leg with his knees, you know, um, just, uh, I guess trying to be playful. But sometimes it was hit the spots like ankle or something that were really hurt, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, for a second, it hurt us. I told him, you know, please stop. So long story short, as I was getting up finally because I needed to get up for work, but also because I was having it with his, him doing that, 
um, he continued kind of like with his hand. You know how kids like play around and with their hands hit their moms or something? Mm-hmm. He kept doing that with his hand to my back. And suddenly, unconsciously, like I felt a sharp pain and I started suddenly crying, <laughs> like really like crying. So he then he got really angry and he said, oh, you're crazy. What kind of life is this? Uh, this is, I married a wife or what? And he got <clears throat> upset for to add me because of my reaction. So I'm starting to think, is it me? Is it him? Is it what, what, what I mean, I, then we calm down. I, I'm always the one that tries to calm down and talk, you know, reason most of the time. But like, to me, I'm starting to think that this is maybe not normal. Well, you know, normal is a word that we can get in trouble with when we use trying to describe what's happening. Because in a way, when you say normal, it's also like, is he wrong or am I wrong? Right. And it could be that you both bring, obviously, you're both bringing your issues into whatever is going on. But I think it's more important to look at this as something between you and him and see what's going on. So the playfulness in bed now, you know, playful already to you might seem like I'm taking his side of it because you didn't like it. But he was it seems like he was trying to be playful. One thing that's important for me always, whether it's a emotional joke or a physical type of joke or playing is both people have to see it as play for it to be play or if you make a joke and it hurts your partner's feelings and they say don't do it you can't say well it's just a joke so i'm going to keep making that joke it has to be a joke is something that happens with between two people they should both enjoy now we sometimes tease each other in playful ways but i think it's important to not cross a line or boundary where the other person really is getting hurt by by what you're doing the same thing physically obviously we don't want to play in a physical way if really it hurts the other person and they're saying stop we want to respect whatever our partner is telling us to stop including uh, touching them in some way now is he just playing is there some anger in his play because sometimes that feeling that you're describing there can be some anger underneath those types of plays and it's through the play that we get uh, that anger out whether it's a joke sometimes people in being sarcastic and making jokes or uh, in physical ways we might get some of that anger out now that doesn't mean if he has anger that's his fault or we're going to put it as he's not normal but we want to understand if there is some anger towards you there that is being played out in this way now your reaction to what happened it's not clear was it the physical pain was it the physical or you know discomfort or that including you telling him to stop and he wasn't stopping that you were getting frustrated and so you cried and then his reaction to your tears you know all of this seems like a pretty bad interaction and what seems like starting with play but ended in tears and and yelling and a bad feeling for both of you so it's going to be important to talk about it but i would say just from your perspective to approach it when you talk to him of not saying is he normal or are you normal but let's try to understand what happened here as a unit you guys are together you're trying to make this work together so we have to be there now maybe you're feeling that he comes at you in a way that feels like it's against you so you have to protect yourself but maybe that's not the case so i want to hear from you based on what i've shared what do you think about the experience or what else can you share about what happened with him today all um if i may say so great observation so it's honestly part all of that involved so 
he definitely, uh, I, I think it's becoming clear to me um, that, although I'm not no, uh, psych, psychologist, I'm not a professional expert on it, but, you know, I, I like, I enjoy this world and kind of try to, uh, you know, not empower myself with knowledge, but he does seem like he has anger issues, if not even towards me, towards his parents. So that's definitely there. But also me, um, I, I, I am also, I think, not very trusting. And, and uh, I know, uh, if, you know, as, as far as when I feel, I don't know, when I tell him to stop or when it's hurting me and he's not believing that it's hurting me, he thinks it's in my head, um, that also causes me frustration too. Mm -hmm. that's sure well which is understandable and that's you know i'm obviously hearing just from your side of it so he might experience it very differently but you know if you're telling him something hurts or you don't want him to do something it, it's uh you know that's for you to make that judgment of what you like to be done to you or not and vice versa towards him so it seems like you think there's some anger there that he might have in general, not just towards you. And that's why it's important for you guys to talk about it. I would bring it up more about between you and him rather than telling him, oh, you're just an angry person or you're angry at everyone. Um, but sharing how you feel that, and, and that's important for you to think about. What do you feel? Because my sense from what you shared was the tears weren't a physical pain leading to tears. It was probably not feeling good, but the fact that he wasn't stopping when you were asking him to stop Yes. might have led more. I know you said you felt some electrical something, but it, it seems like it was more than just the physical. It was the fact that he was continuing when you weren't telling him to stop seems to be a bigger part of what you were feeling. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's true. Yes. And yes. so it's important for you to share that with him and uh, with anyone, but especially with our significant other, we need to have the space and the acceptance from our partner that if we share what we're feeling they accept that or will at least un try to understand that maybe they wouldn't feel the same thing you know he might say if you touch me that same way i wouldn't be hurt or i would like it or i think it's funny but he has to respect just like you have to respect his feelings he needs to respect what you are feeling if you say i don't like this and this hurts me he can't tell you no that doesn't hurt you you know that would be invalidating your feelings and telling you that i can tell you what to feel and that's that wouldn't be good so yeah, I'm he not, does in general, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that could be maybe that's why you're looking for a way of saying, well, I want to know, is he normal? Uh, you know, in a way to confirm that, in a way, you are right for how you're feeling because he's telling you you're wrong for how yeah, you're feeling. Exactly. That, yeah, exactly. I want to say if 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 you know, I know that sounds um, not that I say out loud. I mean, we all have right to have feelings and be heard. Mm -hmm. Um, but but sometimes I really wonder, should I even be having this feeling? You know, is, is there something that, am I making a big deal than it is? Sometimes I wonder, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, these things are complicated because it's usually not black and white. And even mm -hmm. I can't tell you for sure you should be hurt. I don't know exactly what he was doing physically, but just the story you told mm -hmm. me, which I do also understand I'm hearing it from your perspective of it, obviously. But from what you're telling me, if he's touching you in a way, if it's playful, or but you don't like it, I think people always have the right to anyone, but especially their partner, say, I don't like this, please stop, and that should be respected. Now, yeah, we do play with each other sometimes, so someone will say, oh, stop it, and we continue for a second, maybe, depending on what we're doing. You know, people might, you know, you're in the kitchen, you splash water at each other in a playful way. There's there's different ways that we might have that, but uh, if someone says, I don't like this play, this is not for me fun, or I'm not enjoying this, it should be respected, but it does seem like you're not sure that he's going to hear 
your feelings. Uh, but what I was going to say is, you know, let's say someone bumps your arm and you say it hurts. Now, it could be you have an injury in your arm that makes your arm more sensitive, or it could be how they hit you was hard and that hurt, and it's not always going to be clear. And so in this case, when we're talking about emotional things, we all bring the pains and the wounds from childhood and our life experience into the relationship. So someone says something, and yes, maybe it's very clear that it was just wrong and hurtful. Sometimes it's that that's our sensitive spot. Sometimes it's a combination of those things, but we would hope that our partner is always going to want to hear our pain as meaningful to them. So we don't want to hurt our partner's feelings. So if someone says, you know, I hurt my knee and you bump their knee and it hurts, you don't, you're not going to say, well, that's your fault. Your knee hurts. You would probably think I don't want to hurt you. So if I hurt you, I'm sorry. Let me see if I can avoid hitting your knee because I don't want to hurt you. So that's why I don't want you to get so focused on just who's right or wrong but that your pain should be important to your partner and that that should be the most important part is that if you say, you know, this kind of touching and who even knows, maybe for him, this is something in his family, let's say this is a kind of a generalization that might mm -hmm. simplify it, but let's just say in his family, oh, they would always play this way physically it was part of life and your family it didn't happen or it was something not good. So you guys might experience that play very differently. So it's not that one of you is necessarily wrong to enjoy this kind of playing or, you know, wrong to not like this kind of playing. But it, it could just be different. But the pain yeah. should always be respected by anyone, but especially our partner. So to me, I would focus on how you're feeling, not just that he is wrong or bad, uh, and see how he responds to that. It, it seems like you're saying you don't think he he doesn't tend to respond so favorably no. to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't. Because I tried this. I said, when you do this, you know, use that kind of structure. So when you did this, make me fall this way. And he's like, boy, well, shouldn't, or t kind of like basically toughen up. You know, he kind of feels like sometimes talks to me more like, I mean, not even a dad wouldn't talk, my dad would never talk to me like that, but almost like parental or a big brother than like a husband or romantic partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting because then earlier you said you felt like he was being an annoying kid to the mom. Yeah. Um, so there's that dynamic too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Tell me, tell me a bit about the relationship. Like, um, you know, what do you do for work? What does he do for work? Uh, you know, just like an idea of what, how are the dynamics in the relationship? Is there a feeling of up uh, who's, you know, uh, someone being higher or lower than, than the yeah. other, or does it feel uh, like equals? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a valid point. Totally. Yeah. He, he, I think he right now, well, um, kind of, I'm not working in the field that I studied, so, um, uh -huh. so, so he feels like he, he is, and honestly, I'm not contributing as much financially as he is. At some point, I, I was even looking for a job, so at the beginning of our marriage, he was the one who was contributing. So I think that wasn't his expectation. He thought that, you know, I studied law, I would pass the bar exam, you know, he would have it. I, I guess maybe he thought, you know, a lawyer or an equal partner financially. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that's going on, too, because several times he has brought it up. It's semi with an issue. He throws in my face that, well, well, you know, do I tell you I'm being the main provider? Do I, like, why do you, you know, if I ask him you know, to help out with something, he would say, well, do I tell you all the things I, t I do? So it seems like that's bothering him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so there, that's, uh, you know, 
these dynamics of power of who's contributing they're always going to be in any relationship and uh it's important for both partners to feel good about that and that can feel out of balance it does seem like when you bring something up he thinks you're attacking him now i don't know if that's the way you say it or if he's defensive but it seems like there's a reaction to that and that's even why uh in a sense when you bring up this hurts me rather than hearing your pain he's hearing the part where you're saying you did something bad or wrong and yeah. so he it's defends against that and says it's your fault that you know you need to toughen up or it's your it's your weakness that's causing your pain not i did something wrong which is why I, it's important from your side to be aware of how you bring things up not that it's completely your responsibility but as much as you can to not bring out that defensive side by it seems like you're saying you try to make it about your feelings but to not make it come off even with tone um, as an attack on him that it's just sharing your pain now we're at a commercial break and, and i want to get a bit more into these dynamics of of the relationship of how things are going how things have changed because it's not clear even in what you shared it, it could be he wants to have more of the power in the relationship or maybe he doesn't he expects more of an equal partnership but let's explore some of that after the break okay Okay, sounds good. Thank you. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like we lost the caller during the commercial break. We can continue on some of those themes that were brought up um, in our discussion. You know, what's important for me, as I shared with her, is that when you're communicating with your partner, uh, or maybe we have the caller back. If we do, let's bring her back on. Hello. Caller, are you still there? Okay, good. I'm here, thought... yes. I'm not sure what happened. Glad we got reconnected. Yes, I'm glad we did too. Um, I, I was actually going to continue on some of the things we brought up, and I can you know, share that later. But wanted to come back to you and your husband. So you've been married for three years, and you shared one story today and um, about what, what happened of just some quote-unquote from his side playful uh, touching and fighting or that, that to you did not feel playful at all. Um, and we were talking about the dynamics in play. You think he might be disappointed in what you contribute from a financial standpoint <laughs> in the relationship. I, I think it's important you're saying he brings us up in these fights when you're asking him for something. It seems like he's saying, well, why don't you recognize what I contribute already? But to have these conversations, not in the midst of an argument, but to really share how you're both feeling about things in the relationship because these things are are complicated and if we bring them up when we're heated usually they don't go go so well so have you talked about these issues of expectations of how you're both feeling about things when you're both calm about what's going on in the relationship sometimes yeah so it's unfortunately sometimes it happens um you know, first we had a fight, but then we calmed down. And then well, when we are calm, we talk about it. And um, I, I, yeah, we do. And he, we both understand. And I, I understand his perspective that he wants a more um, equal partner in everything, uh, mm-hmm. which in women we were dating, I discussed and said contribution is many different ways. It's not just, it doesn't have to be like exactly 50-50. Oh, today I did this. Is, you have to do this. This is tomorrow. Um, so, um, so he, I don't know, he's kind of more rigid, uh, maybe, uh-huh. I don't know, um, about things. And then one issue I just wanted to bring up totally different, but as a side note, just so you know, it might help you uh, with his behavior. 
He does have some addictive kind of tendencies. He plays, for example, in his free time. He just kept playing video games. As much as free time he has, most of the time he plays video games. Okay. So, does it ever, is it something you guys argue about? Do you get upset with him of how much he plays or is that not? Um, honestly, I, not, I, I mean, sometimes I bring it on, like, I don't say much, but, you know, this is not normal. You should do, you know, you're married, let's have, spend more time together. So sometimes I bring it up that way. Um, but, uh, well, I try not to use the this is not normal, but sometimes it comes out. Um, wow. But, yeah, but, uh, but no, I've never been on his, quote-unquote, on his case about it. I've never, like, screamed okay. or fought with him about it. Yeah, and actually, you know, you, you said it yourself, and I would, again, that, that word normal can usually get things down a bad path. I would bring up what you want. You know, you want to spend more time with him or you want to connect with him more. Because people do things they say normal or they compare to someone else. Oh, you know, so-and-so never plays video games and takes his wife out every whatever, you know. And it's like, yeah, then he could find some husband that does work, plays more video games than he does. So if we're just comparing and having these standards, it usually doesn't get very far. And it's not really what's what matters. What you, what matters is what you want in the relationship and what you're, you're feeling. And so you want to bring okay, that up in sense. that perspective and in that way. Um, but when you say addictive other than the video games, is there anything else or that he's had addiction issues in the past? No, not that I know of. Actually, honestly, okay. the main reason, um, um, uh, well, of course, I, I, I liked him, but the main reason why I was really liked him and, uh, you know, I decided, okay, this is a great quality to marry him was because he seemed very innocent, like he wasn't a playful man. And I think that's what it was probably growing up rather than he playing, being playful with the girls or hanging out with girls. He probably focused on his studies and his games. That was his outlet. And it's continuing on this way now. So that's all he does. But he doesn't, I don't think he really knows. You know, he's not like a playful. Like, his playfulness is what he did this morning. Like, he's not like a playful guy who kind of smooth talker or he's not that type of a guy. He doesn't know, I don't think, how to maybe react, interact with, you know, women, like romantically, like the woman, some woman will like, you know, the, the traditional sense, at least, I should say, yeah. Uh -huh. Which is important, and again, coming back to the woman or the traditional woman you know what's important is you as a woman what you want from him or you know like now if it's something he's not comfortable or doesn't know you're thinking how to do i mean you could talk to him about it see express what you'd like to get from him and if that's something he can provide for you going back a bit you mentioned him being rigid and uh, i didn't ask you you said you went to law school what does he do as far as work yeah he is engineer a mechanical okay. engineer yeah, yeah. So there's a, you know, could be a tendency to like things to be a certain way or fit a certain way. Um, if you feel like he might be rigid, that could then mean when he looks at the contribution and if he says, well, I'm providing this percent of the income, then she should be doing that percent of the housework or so she shouldn't ask me to do something. There could be some sense of calculating, even if it's, you know, almost automatic. And with that, the rigidity, wanting things to be a certain way, when they're not that way, it usually uh, comes out as anger because we want them to fit in a certain way. So if you feel yeah. that anger from him, it could be related to some of those things. Now, yeah. 
you know, what you're expressing is interesting. Often the case, what attracts us to someone, the good side of it we like, but the bad side of it shows up um, later in the relationship. And so that same characteristic that drew us to our partner might make us not feel so good. So you're saying something about this way of him being innocent you liked, um, but now you think the flip side of that is that he might not have certain experience or abilities that you think you actually would want from him within the relationship. And so that might be missing from your side. You know, you mentioned before about intimacy. You said that's a whole other story. And I don't just mean sexual intimacy, but how close do you feel like you and him are? Um, uh, so not, we're getting better, I think. I think we, we got married just about after nine months of dating. So, um, so I think we were still kind of getting to know each other. Um, so it's getting a little bit better. I feel closer to him. But um, it's, I don't, maybe, maybe it was, maybe, um, like, he, he, quote-unquote, and I don't like saying this, but maybe he loved me more than I thought at the time when we got into, like, attract, you know, like, close to him. Maybe yeah. he didn't receive the same thing from me. I don't know, but I feel like it's getting better on my side, but I'm not sure about him. I feel like he still loves me, but I feel like he had a lot of frustrations and anger and unmet needs. I feel okay. like. Well, uh, and if you're feeling that, what's going to be important is to talk to him and confirm that or let him tell you. Because the feeling I got from when you talked about him from the beginning and, and now as you talk about getting to know each other, that that you weren't so close, even it seems like you're still... Now, I recommend to people to always be dating, but in the sense that they approach it in that way. But it's like you're saying, I'm still trying to get to know who he is, even though um, you've been married three years and then dated you said about nine months before that, it just seems like there's some kind of lack of closeness to each other. And even these things you are saying, I think he feels this way. I think it's going to be important to have conversations about these things to see what's going on. What is he unhappy? Sure. Yeah. It's just that I wish honestly, doctor, I could. He's not like such as yourself or some other people who learned or know how to communicate. So he's not a very patient type. So that's why I think I, I don't like arguments. So I think I'm kind of been avoiding it. So we start, and then he kind of gets like, I think like impatient, and then I let it go. And I think I see the pattern. His parents too. Whenever his parents try to like give him advice about life, he suddenly becomes impatient, and they let it go. So I think he's learned, you know, just act out, and then the person will stop saying if you don't like to hear, you know, what yeah. you don't like to hear. And maybe that's true. Um, obviously, it's not going to work long term. And it's, you know, we were talking before about him playing in a way you don't like. You can't force him to have conversations that he's not willing to have or to have them in ways he doesn't want to. But I don't want us to think of it as he can't have them as in that's a black and white thing or an ability he can't have. He yeah, can he get more comfortable. Yeah, or he yeah. chooses not to and he might not have as, let's say, if it's not as much experience or you can also look at what you're doing that might make it harder for him or what you can do to make it easier for him to have these conversations. But we, we right. can't, uh, you know, this is not going to be the solution that, well, he doesn't like having them. And you're saying you don't like conflict. It's kind of a bad combination because if he gets upset, maybe even he gets a little upset, you just drop it to avoid the conflict in that moment. But then you're still left 
unsatisfied and that that conversation didn't happen. So it's going to come up again. So it's important to talk to him about it. Now he might, you might think he's just going to say, I don't think we need to talk about these things. Um, But I would bring it up in the sense of sharing that it seems that at times you're not happy in this marriage or you might not be feeling good too. So connect with his pain and what he's not. So it's not just, Hey, we're going to have these conversations because I want them because I'm not happy, but it's that actually, I think this is good for us. And also I think sometimes you don't seem so happy with me. So I actually it, did that. Um, and he, he, he says, uh, sometimes he confirms that he says, yes, I'm not happy. And then I'm kind of scared because many times out of angry, I'm not scared, but like, of course, I don't, you know, I mean, if it gets to that, that's fine. But, um, but I'd rather not get divorced, right? I'd rather work on my relationship. But he sometimes just brings out like, okay, let's just bring me the papers. I'll sign it. So he sometimes okay. says very mean things like that. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, the papers and I can get that that's, uh, you know, that's that threat. And I always tell couples don't use that as a threat. Um, if you yeah, really mean it, of course, yeah. but don't just say it as in the middle of a fight because you're so upset to just, you know, yeah. almost like hurt the other person. Uh, but again, yeah, it's that fear of conflict and underneath the fear of conflict tends to be a fear of abandonment or the relationship ending. So we're afraid of the conflict because we think we're going to lose the person. And so when he makes those threats, unfortunately, it attaches itself even more strongly to that fear. And so you feel like it's yeah. interesting because you said, I want to work on the marriage but you feel kind of stuck because you feel like talking about it and working on the marriage is the bad thing. So it's like, what do you do? So I think that's why you feel a little bit stuck here. And so you're Mm going to have to face that conflict that you don't like. You're going to have to be aware of his feelings and and what he's going through. And and so be aware that what might not sound threatening to you might to him sound like you're attacking him or making him feel bad. Doesn't mean that you you can't bring anything up, but just to be aware of that, that you're going to have to, the only way... Um, that you will have a better marriage with him is is figuring these things out. And if he's not happy, sure. that then I would say, okay, if you're not happy, um, I, I want to know. Let's see what we can work on together. And it, I can get that it's scary when he makes those threats, but it seems like that's just a, more of a threat that he's just frustrated and he thinks, yeah. you know, if you're not happy, then let's just end this thing. And he might even be thinking you're telling him you don't, again, you might think it's about you, but he might take it personally that you're saying you're a bad husband or I don't love you or you're doing something wrong. And because yeah. he can't handle that, he just goes, to, okay, well, then this, let's just end this then. If you don't like me, that's it. Um, and so then you might feel stuck, but it doesn't seem like that's really what he even is is, is feeling. So I can get it that it seems like it's challenging for him to have these conversations and then your combination of him not liking the con- the conversations and getting upset and your fear of conflict then leads to the conversations ending and not getting very far. But you might have to withstand some of his upset. Doesn't mean if he's being mean or disrespectful, you have to take it. But just understand that likely he's going to get upset in this conversation or it's going to be uncomfortable. But you'll have to sit through that discomfort in order to get somewhere better. And, you know, when you say work on the marriage, that's good. You said, I want to work on it rather than get divorced. But what I would suggest is you have to actually work on it as in face the problem or problems and see what's there. And if they are too much, obviously divorce is an option that is there if things don't work out, not that you're there yet. But you have to test what's there to see if, you know, it it can get strengthened and become better or if it can't, you know, something's there. And, you know, it does seem like the way you guys met and you got married, I, I get the sense that you're... 
choosing him as a husband wasn't about being in love with him so much as the best person. Maybe it was safer in some way. I don't know. But there's just mm -hmm. a way you talk about him. It doesn't seem like you were head over heels uh, yes, in love with him. That. You're absolutely right about that. I'm kind of ashamed to admit that. But no, that's true. Yeah, I, I married for practical reasons and uh, mm -hmm. not really because I was totally, utterly in love. <laughs> Yeah. And and so maybe that safety there, you know, that's part of what you're feeling now. You're trying to get what you, you know, you didn't actually bargain for. You asked for something uh, safe, but then now you're expecting it to be more than that. So you have to be aware of that from your side, too, that it, it seems like he showed you who he was and you said, OK, I want this. And then now you're saying, why aren't you different? But he told you this is who he is, yeah. you know. Um, so that's just something also to be aware of. And I hope you'll Try to work on it, realize that, and, you know, even that itself, if you can't talk about things, can be a sign of something's not right. You know, it doesn't mean you can't, you should just not talk. You have to recognize that's itself a sign. People will tell me, well, I want to tell my boyfriend or my girlfriend this, but I, I can never tell them anything because they get so mad or they explode. And, and so that itself can be a red flag. Now, maybe he yeah. doesn't explode, but his anger to you is hard to tolerate. I hope you'll... Uh, try to sit through that and it's something you know uh, if it's in your own therapy or something for you to reflect on this fear of conflict uh, looking at that most people don't like conflict but some people have a very strong fear and they avoid it almost at any cost and so that's something for you to be aware of that that fear of conflict in a way you're giving him a way out not that it should be about you against him but it's a way of him to avoid it works if he gets angry and you stop the conversation he's getting what he wants kind of like when a child tantrums and you know we break the rules for them so you know you've got to withstand it again with as long as he's being respectful if he's angry, you don't have to accept any kind of disrespect, but you might have to withstand that anger. And I hope you'll go into it. And when you say work on it, actually go work on it. And let's see what we have. And if it can work, great. If not, then let's learn that sooner rather than later. That's fair. I appreciate your time. I don't want to take My too pleasure. much more of your time. But no, I guess no. I just... <laughs> thank you. I guess at the end, I just wanted to know, and even though I say I don't want to get divorced, I don't want to be, and it's not fair to him either, to be in an mm -hmm. unhappy marriage. So you think I will be standard, I'll do my best. I uh, suggested to him many times to go to therapy. He says we don't need a therapist, so he's been refusing so far. Yeah. So somehow we can make it work, maybe I don't know, get a book or something. If I still see that I, I resisted that my fear of conflict and I sat through it and it still is not going anywhere, then maybe this is not the right relationship, probably. It, uh, it might not be. I mean, you know, the the way you're describing him, it's not surprising that he doesn't want to go to therapy. He doesn't like even having a five-minute conversation with you about it, let alone pay <laughs> someone to go talk about it for hours, you know, so... Um, but, you know, that is going to be needed. Not necessarily you need therapy. I think it would be good. I would hope he would be open to that um, yeah. with a book. But even when you're saying that, I, I find it, I'm not, I don't want to say I know what's going to happen. But the way you describe him, that he wouldn't want to get a book and sit there. He's saying we don't have any, we don't need the help. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's important to get to how you both are not happy in some ways. But connecting with him, not telling him forcing him to say he's unhappy, but when he's not saying, that's why I want us, you know, I want things to be better because um, I don't want to make you feel the way you feel or for you not to feel fulfilled or you said you think he has unmet needs. Um, so we have to try that. But if you can't work on things, you know, this might be a way of your fear of conflict as much as you 
want to talk about things maybe you're afraid to talk about things too and so you picked someone where you never have to really have conflicts because he's going to avoid everything so there's also that aspect of it that you really need to look at what what did i choose when i chose him maybe i wanted some of these things i'm saying i don't want um but we, we'll let's wrap up there think about some of those sure. things and uh wish you and him the best thank you so much again uh, my pleasure to you too. nice right. talking to you take care bye-bye all right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Um, hello, doctor. Um, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. Just to let you know, we have about eight, nine minutes, so I apologize. It'll be kind of brief, but go ahead. Uh, okay. I... Um it's about my uh, 22 month daughter and um, I since she was six months I had a babysitter helping me I was working from home all the time and the babysitter also was home helping me with the, my, my daughter all of a sudden when my daughter was 18 19 months old uh, the babysitter, she quit, and she didn't show up the next day, and then later she called, she can't ma- come anymore. So I found another babysitter. She was, the one that she was, she quit, it was Persian, speak Farsi, but I couldn't fa- found um, any other Persian. So I found an American lady, she was coming, and since the beginning, my daughter, she couldn't connect with her. She didn't like to mm. be with her. She didn't want to play with her. Even for one hour or two hours she would play and then she start crying and she would come to me and she wanted me to hold her. So uh, that's why I told the babysitter I don't want her to come anymore mm-hmm. because my daughter was not happy. And then I had a friend that she had a three-year-old son that they were really close with my daughter. They played along good, everything. So I started taking, my friend, she said, bring it to my house and she can play with my son and started this Monday taking her to their house. But at the beginning, when we want to take her, she cries a lot. So I don't know, am I doing the right thing? Should I take her there or what should I do? I don't know what is, the best for her yeah that's a obviously you know these situations with our kids we don't want to hurt them we don't know what's the best thing and often it's not going to be clear what what that is and also we try to give our children the most stable upbringing life we can but sometimes things happen the babysitter stopped coming and so we can understand that for your daughter this was a big loss i think from what you said from about six months to 18 months so for a year um she was with this woman getting close connected and then all of a sudden she's gone and you know a year for anyone but of course when it's like that's her whole life and that's all she's known essentially and this woman disappears it can be very tough for the child obviously they might not verbalize it or be able to verbalize what's going on but we know that that's going to be a tough uh, experience because at some level she probably formed an attachment with this woman and yeah. now she disappears all of a sudden and then there's a new person there and and i'm glad you in that way respected what your daughter was showing you that she was not okay 
now likely over time she would have gotten more comfortable with that new person but there's no need to force her to to do that if she's feeling that um, down and even when that you know babysitter left it might have been good to spend more time with her yourself anyway to deal with that loss again a loss that she can't verbalize but she's going to feel um now going to the new place the new house so are you saying you would drop her off there and you would leave yeah in the morning usually if i go she wouldn't let me to leave she wants okay i can barely hear you by the way if i don't know if you can speak a little louder or the speaker might be Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, That's if I right. leave her, if I take her, I have to stay there. She wouldn't let me to leave. But if my husband take her, um, he stay there for maybe 10, 15 minutes. When she feels comfortable, she goes to the um, room and start playing with the boy. Then my husband can leave. So I don't know, is this good thing? Should I take her there? Uh, because my friend also said that she can watch her until March, but after March, I have to find a daycare or, you know, something to yeah. take her there. I don't know. Should I let her to go there? What should I do? Yeah, well, these changes are, are tough. Um, clearly, she wants to be with you, but that doesn't mean that she can. She has to stay with you the whole time. It, it could be okay to send a child at her age uh, you know, two and a half to daycare. So there's no way for your work, you have to leave the home. You can't be home. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you, you know, I would, ideally you would be staying with her at that house. Uh, many people these days, they're working from home depending on what they're doing. So I didn't know if that was an option to be around her in, in some way or be around her some more. I don't see it as hugely detrimental either way if she stays there for a while now is this how many hours a day is she there um usually for five hours a day she is home until like 10 and then around 3 34 i go and pick her up hmm. okay yeah i mean that's you know it's a fair amount of time at her, at her age I, if you don't really have any other options what what's what are your options right now tell me what are you between um the other option is she could stay home but some days it's going to be very tough for me because my hours are, I have a due date, you know, it's like cut off time. I have to do this by this time, this by this time. And I'm afraid sometimes when I'm very busy I, and then she starts crying or she wants something, I won't be able to fulfill what he is requesting, you know, but. That's the only option. Either stay with me at home or take it to their friend's house and stay with them and their son. Well, I mean, I would say ideally staying, you know, in the same place with you would be better and also that she's not going to a new place. So, uh, but, you know, all this back and forth also, you've just taken her to the other place. I mean, if you could keep her at home, I think that's better if you can get help in the home that she'll slowly get used to. That might be easier than taking her somewhere. But you have to do what, you know, these types of things, in my opinion, usually it's not so black and white. Because if she stays at home with you, you know what you go through. If it makes you more stressed, and then that's going to affect how you are, and then also how you interact with her, then that might be worse than her being somewhere else. So I, I know you're looking for some black and white answer, but I, I don't know if I can provide that for you. Because it really matters what it's like. If when she's home with you, 
okay, it's a little bit harder, but you're okay, then I would say do that. But if you're going to be very stressed, and then when you interact with her and she needs you, you're going to feel you know, annoyed by her or upset with her because in that moment you can't give her what she needs and that could be worse. So these types of questions, sometimes there's a black and white, sometimes there's not. It's going to be very important for you to look at if I keep her at home, how much is that going to affect how I am with her? If you feel like that's going to be so stressful, then I would say take her to your friend's home um, and, and, you know, do it that way so that when you're with her, the quality of when you're with her will be better. Uh, and then yeah. you'll have to apparently find her a daycare. So I, I would see if you what do you think is the best option with that. I know it's not a clear answer. Yeah. You would have to make but the decision. But now my concern this. is my concern is because my friend said you know until like February March, and March yeah. after that she won't be able to watch her, and I have to find find a daycare or somewhere to take her. So. Again, is it going to be another tough, you know, because... These things happen, though. I'm sorry to cut you off. I just, I do have to end the show. These things will happen. You know, there's people will, sometimes these changes do happen. It's okay. It's not ideal. But if you had to then find a daycare in, in March, that would be okay. And then, you know, you're at a daycare and people at the daycare... The workers might change or things can change. So we try to keep the, the security and the stability and the sameness, but we don't we don't always have that opportunity. I'm sorry you have to wrap up. If you want to call another time, we probably can talk about it some more, uh, but uh, I do have to end the show now. But thank you for calling. All right, I think we're, we've got to the end of the show. Thank you to Ghazal in the studio. Everyone called and listened. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.